hair right. You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something. The gentleman on my show today went to high school about 45 minutes away from where I went to high school and where I now moved back and lived. And he went to high school in Princeton. And a little known fact that Princeton is one of the only three Trader Joe's in New Jersey that sells booze. When I moved back from LA, every Christmas I would get this Trader Joe's dark, really good clovey Christmas ale. And the first year I was back, I, I couldn't find it. And then I found out they had it in Princeton. So I got in my car early in the morning, drove down 295. It always seems like a longer ride, but it's only like 45 minutes. But uh, <laughs> I got the booze. And my guest from the band Blues Traveler is uh, Chad Kinch. Chad Kinch. How you doing, Chad? Nice to see you, Steve. Great to be here on Cooper Talk. Now, are you in L.A. now or are you in New Jersey? Where are you I'm at? in no, I'm in Los Angeles. I've been out here now 20 years. I've fled to the West Coast. I'm a trader. Well, no, I was um, I was out there. But, I was I was out there for 18 or 19. I just moved back four years ago. Right on. I mean, listen, I love growing up in New Jersey. I would, if there was a reason or if the fates conspired, I'd be happy to move back. But my, uh, I've got two kids out here. Um, well, one now, one's flown the coop. Uh, so I've raised my kids out here, my family, you know, so I kind of been got locked in and the weather's phenomenal. So it's tough to leave. That's, that's the one thing I do miss. I miss, you know, I lived, I in, Bur- I lived in Burbank where it was always like 90 or 85. You're cl- so. Yeah. You're close to me. I'm in studio city. Okay. Too. So I'm right next door. So yeah, the, the new album came out, you have a new song off it. I want to ask you, okay. I listened to Traveler's Blues today, and now you have the bonus single coming out. How does that work? Like, all of a sudden, do you guys sit there and say, we recorded something, we want to add it, or... Because that's How does out. it work? Well, the, uh, usually, uh, when you're making a record, you, you'll make a few extra tracks. You, you'll, you, you'll record more than you're going to put on the record. And for various reasons, and it doesn't mean the song's not as good... It just doesn't fit with the rest of them. So there's usually a song or two you got to keep off. And then the powers that be want to keep some kind of profile going to kind of, I guess, sell more records or whatever. So they come up with the bonus track. Uh, Once, you know, once we finish the record as it is, you know, then it's uh, the record company is going to come up with whatever ideas they can to uh, promote it. So in the end, they're going to probably use some outtakes to give it like bonus features and, you know, that's the you know the name of the game, but upon recording them all, it, it, you never know which is going to be on the record. So they're all they all have great qualities. It's not like the nest. I mean, some of my favorite songs never made it on an album and got released as bonus tracks for old albums. I mean, it happens just about every record. Now, what made you decide to go this way with the covers, and and how do you? pick them because it's not like you're per se doing like a Beatles cover album. You know, you're doing a whole genre. You, got, you wanted to get more yeah. bluesy. How do you go through and you know, you have Roadhouse Blues and you have Crazy. I mean, whose idea was it to start? And then how did you guys do the process of picking? Well, what it's, it, so we've been talking about doing a blues record for a good part of a decade. We did start out as a blues band in high school. 
but we were a bunch of white kids from the suburbs and we kind of pre- pretty much sucked, but we really loved it. I think we loved the, the, um, kind of the improvisational emotional aspect of blues. And I think that's kind of what is, has evolved in our music. You know, that's what really drew us to music. It was, it was in the moment, depending on the mood you were in or how you played it, the songs could feel totally differently. And we've, we went very far afield from that. So it was something we kind of would have been playing with the idea of getting back to because everyone's like, you're not really a blues band. I'm like, well, we can play the blues. We just kind of have gone, <laughs> we've gone off, gone off out in the space, which is great too. Um, so then we started talking with Roundhill Records, which has this great catalog. So the, the, all this stuff is, uh, our license is owned by Roundhill Records or, or, uh, their, or the, the publishing company there. And we were talking about doing something with them, either a new studio album or, and we, then we were like, well, let's maybe do some covers or maybe we'll do a blues record. And then, you know, so then the idea came about, we have this great catalog. So the process of picking the songs, you got to remember, this is in the middle of Corona 2020. Uh, so we were at the time looking for anything to do. So we were all excited, but it's like these things go, it's, uh, the, the head of Roundhill Records, our manager, the five band members, the producer, just start swapping. You know, first it's the master list of a thousand blues songs, and then we cut it down to hundreds, and we keep sending these these group emails around, and eventually it gets down to maybe thirty that seem to be ones we're all kind of interested in as a group as a collective, and then I. Matt Rollins, our fearless producer, uh, is he's the one probably responsible for wheedling it down to like fourteen cool songs that you know that we are all that we're all on board with. So it was a long, torturous chain email, you know, weeding slowly through these over you know quarantine. So that's that's where that's where we got down to this list, and then we ended up going to Nashville and recording it all. Now, when you started recording it. I always wonder, like, how do you find there's guests on the album? Okay, and I know it's like anything, you know. Has there, first of all, has there been any guests that you went on the album and they said no, and you're like, what the, what the hell? Or well, it's not so much a hard no, but once again, I mean, we've had guests throughout the years on all our all our different records. A lot of times, it's you know, you send out a wish list. Some people are busy with other projects. Some people can't get to it. Some people are just politely saying no because they're not into it. They're not in the mood, you know. Um, and in this case, it was a huge list uh, of people we went out we went out to. And once again, it was one of those chain emails because we're all quarantined up. And uh, how about this person? How about this person? And once again, this is what a producer really does is – there's especially when there's five band members with pretty equal in, input, varying degrees of equal input, a manager and, and everyone, uh, and record company all involved. The producer kind of is the pivot person between all those concepts and ideas. And Matt, we worked with on our previous record, hurry up and hang around. So we had a great relationship with him, Matt Rowling's our producer. So once they all came together, it really was on him to, get in touch with these people. And, and some of the people we reached out to was personally as band members, if we knew them, but 
he was the one who had to coordinate logistics because as you all, as we all remember that in the year that time forgot, we went to Nashville and it was kind of like we were in a bubble. There was some, we had to like test every day in the studio. I mean, it was, that was, we did it in the fall of 2020. So everything was very hairball at that point. So he was the one who got people to come in after, like we would record all the, we recorded all the tracks and then he was the one who had to get all the logistics together. So that, impacted um some of the choices but to be honest i mean we got such a great wish list of uh and so so many great people on it we were so happily surprised but it was fun because we recorded all these tracks we were super happy with them then we went home and then matt would slowly over the next month or so send us these guests as they would come in and that was kind of like christmas for us what was it like mentally? You know, you said you had to test every day. You know, you know, you, you know, you've been playing for a long time. You used to just go into the studio. Okay, let's go to the studio. But now all of a sudden, you have to test. You have to do that. And and I'm sure also in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, you know, we don't know our future. We don't know live music, things like that. What's it like? Was it harder for you to create during that time and just feel? No, good I mean jamming? we were so ecstatic to be doing anything at that point. So honestly, it, it was a celebration the whole time. We were so happy just to be working, and you know, we've been around since high school. You know, in 1987, the band got together. We've been through all kinds of crazy stuff. Bobby Sheehan passing away, music changing, ups and downs, touring a lot, accidents on tour, health stuff. So just being a road dog and surviving through all of that. I think we're pretty good at taking things in stride and just kind of, you just, you got to, you know, the, uh, the old saying, the show must go on. You just kind of keep finding interesting ways to approach it. And, uh, you know, I think, as I say, the longer I do this, the more I like it, the more gratitude I have about it. So once we got down to the studio, we were just excited. And, you know, uh, when the world's going crazy, we know we knew music was going to carry on. So I don't think we were too worried about that. And uh, you know, we just we just barreled through. I don't think any of us worried all that much about it. It was a little strange, but once we were in our bubble in the studio, we were all in. It was a great way to spend you know the day instead of worrying about COVID and all the rest of that BS. Well, I mean, yeah, just it's like one of those things, you know. Then you had the tour bus accident. Now, you finally get back to being on the road. So you got to be excited. Like, it's like, oh, Christ, we can get back. Cause, and you know and I know. I've been to shows since COVID ended. The crowds were explosive. Those first few oh, yeah. shows I went to. It people like were all summer long. Nuts. Well, what was it like when you finally have this tour planned and there's a tour bus accident? Do you, first of all, you're all healthy, which is good. But was it yeah. a mental letdown? Like, were you like. No, because we, we kept going. What? I mean, we, we would been out for about six weeks and that happened towards the end of, of the summer tour. So we had been out all summer and we were kind of banged up, but we just, we only had a few 10 days left to tour. So we finished up tour and just however we could. And, you know, I guess it was definitely jarring, but you know, in some ways it's healthy or not healthy. We're, you know, being, being touring for as long as we have, you know, you just keep barreling through. Then we got home. One of our crew guys had to have surgery. John had found out that he had done some actual damage to his knee, and the doctor said he should probably stay off it. All those, we kind of uh, uh, took stock once we finally finished that the summer tour. So we did what 
we uh, always do is just barrel ahead. But then once we got home, we realized that we should probably fit. We, we had another two weeks just in the, at the uh, tail end of uh, September, early October. And we just realized that we should probably not push it at that point. So we had a great summer tour. What made you pick up guitar? You know, I know, I believe you were born in Canada and you moved to Princeton. What, like, what were some yes, of your musical indeed. influences? Because, you know, you're a Jersey guy like me. And, you know, you think about it, like, we, I listen to Philadelphia stations. You guys are in the middle. You might have listened to Philly or New York, but you know we were sure, listening. Sure, WMMR, yeah, so Robert. Yeah, so you were listening to that, and, and at the time, you know the New Jersey sound was, you know, in the eighties there was a very, the Galaxy was a metal bar, and of course we had Springsteen and Bon Jovi. But what what drove you to play music? Was it a certain just you? As well, a let's say um, my pickup guitar stories. I always loved music. But my parents had a great record collection, and, you know, I listened to everything. But, but, but when I was around, I had a buddy across the street who I grew up with, who was my childhood friend. After school, I'd go over to his house every day. And when I was around 11, I went over to his house, and he had gotten a guitar. I picked it up, started playing it, and I was like, ooh, I like this. And then, so for the next two weeks, I'd go over to his house, and instead of playing with him, I'd just play his guitar. And eventually... After two weeks, he just gave me the guitar. So, um, and I'm still friends with the guy to this day. But uh, it was one of those things, when I picked it up, I just, something about it I fell in love with. But, uh, and, you know, I was awful. But luckily, what I was really into at that point was actually more, you know, early 80s, punk rock, new wave. And Princeton had a great college radio station that played all that great record store. I could go all these imports. So I was listening to bands like the jam, the clash, the English beat, uh, squeeze, uh, the police. I got into all that new wave and, and punk rock stuff. Um, sex pistols, of course, uh, which was great for starter guitar. Cause all that stuff's pretty simple. <laughs> um, and but after a while, as I got a little better, you know, the, the bridge to more um, to more challenging, interesting guitar was, was David Bowie. Because he kind of looked like a punk rocker. And this is when I'm like 13, right? 12, 13. Kind of looked like punk rock, but he was playing classic rock, as I f figured out. Um, and then I was off, you know, 10 years after Led Zeppelin and all the rest of that was my high school. And then The Grateful Dead. Um, huge fan of Prince. I mean... Fairly, I always loved every kind of music, and uh, you know those early days too. I was a lot of like straight up blues, like uh, uh, John Lee Hooker, Elmore James. My dad had all these blues records. Uh, Eric Clapton with the uh, with the Blues Breakers, all that stuff. I would figure out all those solos. Um, Ten years after Alvin Lee, that was all. That was really big. So you know, pretty soon I got all the way down those roads. But when I first started out, it was punk rock. But, you know, I'm, I got good at bar chords right off the bat. Now, you know, I always say, when you read Wikipedia, you never know. Like, I've had guests who are actors. Like, oh, I heard you're on this show. And they're like, I wasn't on that. Like, oh, Wikipedia. Now, now, did you play football and you hurt your knee? And is that how you got concentrated more towards music? Or is that a bunch of bullshit? I never really hurt my knee. I think that's... <laughs> that. It's funny. I've been asked that a lot because it's... I think snarkily at some point we just made up uh, a bio at some point in the last 30 years and some of that info got in I did play a lot of sports in high school um, 
but very, you know, uh, and I was going to go off to college to play, play football, but we moved to New York instead. I took a year off to, to try, you know, when we were to try and be in a band. And after that year, we had zero gigs and we're, and nothing was going right, but I couldn't give it up. So we stayed in New York and I ended up going to NYU for a semester, but I was going to play football, but the drugs and the girls were way cooler in rock and roll. So I stayed there. <laughs> now, now, how did you meet John? It always cracks me up because I know John, I believe John and Chris Barron were in the marching band together, which just blows your mind when you well, think. Well, not marching band. So what it is is Brendan, our, the drummer, John and Chris Barron were in the, the Princeton High School studio band, which was a pretty big, they, it was a big band, like big jazz band. Um, our school, Princeton High School, had a, really great music area suite with all these little studios they had an amp room and they were all in the in the in the jazz band the um i was self-taught but i played in the uh blues the improvisation class but i would just skip class and be in the little rehearsal rooms get really baked and sit in there and skip class and practice my guitar so john and brendan would always see me in there and I kind of knew a John because he was well known because even back then he was phenomenal and would just rock, blow the doors off with his harmonica solos. Um, and at one point, he, I just started talking to him and we just went and jammed in the, in the amp room back in 86. We were, I was a sophomore. He was a junior probably. And, um, and then they, they kicked out there. Then I came to play with them and they kicked, they called their other guitar player and kicked them out because right off the bat, we, the, me, John and Brendan at the time, we didn't really, we, there's another ba bass player with them, but it was kind of part-time. But the three of us right off the bat, just, just had a really great chemistry. And then my friend Bobby joined uh, the bass player, the original bass player. We were kind of the deadhead partier crew and we joined the kind of the jazz nerd crew um but it was all just high school kids you know that's how high school kids come together but we were all you know all in, in high school together well now you said you know you went to new york and you guys weren't getting gigs how do you go from not getting gigs to getting your first record deal well that just gotta get after it i mean we went to new york in 87 right out of high school literally two days after we graduated, John had gone up there a year earlier to go to the new school because John was a year ahead of us in high school. We had actually gone up and played some talent nights my senior year. We would just drive up and play like, and at the time, New York was, you know, this is like uh, crack 80s, but they had just gotten rid of this thing called the cabaret law. Uh, up until that point, unless you had a special... Uh, a special license of which there was only like 20 in the city, you weren't allowed to have more than three people on stage. So uh, in 87, right when we moved up there, they rescinded this law. So every bar in, in the Lower East Side, um, all these, these total dive bars was, were playing music. And a lot of talent nights, a lot of things like that. So that first year we would just go in as a band which you're supposed to go in and they mix and match you, but we would just, it was like a jam night, but we would just go in as a band and play all those. Um, and towards the end of that year, we, um, we were like, well, screw this. We got to do our own thing. So we 
we got a basement of this horrendous bar called the Lismore Lounge, but uh, it was on the first street, uh, Avenue A and first street in, the, in Alphabet City, Lower East Side Alphabet City. This, um, and we, uh, we handed out flyers. It was $5 at the door and all the free pot and mushroom tea and nitrous you, with, the, with the cover for admission, dollar drafts. And we went out and we just flyered every, uh, flyered every college, university, NYU, um, Columbia, up at Central Park, New School, Parsons School of Design. There are so many schools around. We would stand at corners just handing out flyers offering free drugs so people would come for the free drugs and then i guess they'd like the band so that that created a little seed and uh and then we would take mondays and tuesday nights at these other little dive bars where there was no one there and slowly our you know weird hippie funky college uh people would come in and we just started packing those places and led to a lot of other gigs and you know really quickly within a year or two we were like the biggest band in new york i mean bar band and right um so you know new york city all the record people are there so we were like for uh, fairly quickly the thing to go see so record people came around we didn't really fit into the uh, hair metal 80s mold which is what was big at the time but uh you know a few people took a chance on us but you know as most bands will tell you once you get a record deal then the work really starts because the record deal doesn't mean much at all. You know, then it's the navigating everything with the, the politics of the company. And then you got to get out toward the, the country. And that's a whole nother uh, can of worms. But, how, you know, how, we were just hustled. We played six, seven nights a week, you know, every all over town. And luckily it was New York. So they could absorb us. And on weekends we would play our college, our friends in college frat parties. And that kind of got us a little Northeast vibe. But it was just a lot of playing and not taking no for an answer and, you know, just getting after it. Now, were you playing originals back then or were you doing long jams? Uh, always. We always played originals from the get-go. Now, how did they react? Because a know, few covers flashed in for fun. But but did the, did the people, I mean, you had the fans, but, you know, they used to always say with bar owners and stuff like that, that they're like, oh, we don't want anyone playing, you know, originals because people don't come. Because especially in, you know, well, in New Jersey, the cover bands were so giant. I mean, it's funny. I left and I came back 25 years later and there's still cover bands that were playing when I left. And I'm sure there's only one guy left. But um, but for you guys, you know, when you started making, when you, you were doing, always doing your own music, was the record company like cool with that? Because you, you guys would do some jams. And as you said, the music scene was different then. Well, in New York at that time, there was a great uh, live music scene because there were so many of these clubs and bars open. And it was this really cool kind of edgy New York version of R&B funk. And, but it was also a lot of improvisation and, and solos and, and all the musicians would sit in with each other. So it was a really rich, you know, bands that there, some of the bands are like uh, uh, Mr. Thing, The Worms, The Surreal McCoys, all these great bands at the time. And we would open up for them sometimes. Um, but everyone would sit in with each other. Um, and, but we, everyone was doing originals. Uh, and that that just was like the cool thing to do. I don't think there was any real uh, cover bands, maybe a few blues bands that played some blues, traditional blues songs, um, of which there were plenty. There was plenty of that, too, at Dan Lynch's. But uh, we, you know, 
it was never being a cover band was never cool. So we never, and we loved writing our own music. Luckily we had a lot of different people in the band that did songwriting. So being a cover band was never on our, uh, radar and, you know, record companies, uh, want, they want original songs. I mean, covers is an easy way to, to get a quick hit, I guess, but that never really was our, uh, was our direction. So you record the first album, then you go into the second album. The first album does okay. You get a big college radio following. Now, where what is it like when you come out with a second album? Did, did you feel the pressure? Because people always say, after you put that first album out, you start feeling pressure. Or did you guys no, just not care? we were so young and dumb, man. We just... And, and at that point, we were touring 200 dates a year, just in vans all over the country. We were 20, 21 years old, you know? Um... And our live show was starting to, you know, our live crowd was starting to grow all around the country, especially like in the East Coast and Colorado. And uh, so we had always kind of envisioned ourselves. We didn't really fit in with the pop, with with commercial radio. So we never really imagined we'd be that successful in commercial radio. But our, we always thought we'd be more like a Grateful Dead model with a big live audience. Was So that was really where our focus was. So the albums were great, and it was fun to do. I mean, our second record, we pretty much just wrote while we were on tour and then threw it together in, you know, in a couple weeks in between touring dates. But back then, we were on the road just hell-bent, hell-bent for leather, just nonstop, you know. And, uh, and that's what we, we were focused on. And, uh, you know, a couple albums later, when we got top 40 radio success, we were as surprised as anyone. Now, now how did you guys end up on Letterman? Well, Letterman was cool. The, uh, we played this club in New York, this little bar, really, down on Thompson, right off of Bleecker Street, called Mondo Cane. It's like a little 200-seat bar, but we used to just pack that place. And, uh, you know, that was another thing. Our, our crowds always drank a lot, so we always broke all their bar records, so it got us more and more gigs, because all the, that's all the bars really care about anyway. The guy, um, the bartender there, this bartender there, was moonlighting there, but he was trying to get a break in the show business. He eventually got to be a booker for David Letterman. So he got us, before we, you know, we had just put our first record out, before we had any um, profile at all, he got us, snuck us on Letterman. Uh, but he was somebody we used to just party with and work with, you know, in these little bars. And uh, Dave took a shine to us. So, I mean, for me and John, two kids that grew up late at night, you know, listening to Letterman Band, watching Letterman. I mean, I distinctly remember, you know, as a 14-year-old kid playing along with, with the Paul Schaefer Band and just practicing my scales watching Letterman in, you know, the wee hours of the morning. Um. So for us to get on Letterman was that was huge, you know, and that was our first uh, national exposure. Now you also played on SNL. How did that affect you guys? Because SNL, they always say, if you go on SNL, it it, it really helps your your. Well, it was scope. one. I mean, it definitely. I mean, it was one for the. Uh, was one. It was one of a uh, one for the trophy case, I guess. You know the. Uh, and it was great. It was Will Ferrell's first show. It was a whole new cast. It was the uh, the season premiere. Um, and, you know, at that point, 
that was when four was really big and we had hit singles. It was, you know, every band has a run of a couple of years where they can do no wrong. So everything was just lining up. So it was just more, more of that madness. Uh, but, you know, when you look back, doing things like that are something you fondly remember. Every, you know, every cool band's got to do SNL once, right? Now, now, you guys, you know, as you said, you, you, you had a big following and then four comes out. Well, first of all, how did, how did you get involved with Steve Thompson? Steve's been on the show, and Steve's got the crazy hair and the thick chains. How did, how did that come about? Mike, Mike Barbiero, Steve Thompson, we uh, we actually met them doing Save a Soul, which Save a Soul, our third studio record, we recorded down in the, out in the, the swamps of Bogaluisa, Louisiana. And we recorded that ourselves pretty much. But we didn't know what we were doing, so it was it was all over the place. So we met them. They came in and kind of cleaned it up and made it seem presentable. It actually came out as a really cool record. Um, so we got built a relationship up, up with them and really vibed with them. And, you know, uh, Mike and Steve, Mike's more the, the all business, get, it, get the, everything sounding right. And Steve's a crazy idea, like, wouldn't this be cool guy? We had a great relationship. We went up to Woodstock and we're up there for a couple months and uh, – you know, at that time, A&M was really hitting on all cylinders. We had been with them for four albums. That was back when record companies really worked with bands to slowly develop them. They had a bunch of hits like Sting, uh, Soundgarden, Neville, Art Neville, Sheryl Crow. They were, you know, everything was hitting for them. Um, so they were kind of ready to, to break us. You know, that was just, we heard that before. We were fairly sure it wasn't going to happen, but... Um, you know, everything was kind of the all the momentum was kind of going that way when we when we got up to Bearsville for four to make a good record, and that's where we were at. Um, you know, we had songs we thought were singles before, and it never did anything for whatever reason. Um, a couple of the ones on that record took off. Now, when they take off, you know, as you said, you're in the band, you've been playing them, but you're, the songs are playing all the time. Now, for yeah, you, I was sick of us. Yeah, one, there was one period. Especially because back then it was MTV and VH1 was like the main. There was a one period for during the summer. It was like us, Seal, Kiss by a Rove in the Gra- Rose on the Grave, and uh, what TLC, <laughs> Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls. We're literally on VH1 and MTV. Just those three songs, no matter which channel you turn to, and Blues Traveler nonstop. It's funny, we did all these radio shows, you know, for the big top 40 radio stations that summer, and it was us. TLC and Seal would be like hanging out in trailers next to each other. It was just, it was, the whole thing was surreal. Um, but it was but a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And, and heck, we made some good cash. Yeah, I was going to say, all of a sudden, you guys who, you know, you were playing, you were making good money. And, you know, I think, well, first of all, you know, you were always playing packed houses in the small bars. So the yeah. transition to a bigger audiences as audiences got bigger must be pretty easy for you guys because you already had the live chops down it was but it, i mean in some ways it, there was a lot of culture shock because we had been going one direction with like hardcore fans who knew all the different you know we didn't have any hits so we play all this different stuff and it was really an organic um kind of cult uh thing and then when we got all this top 40 hit all these kind of more casual fans came who just knew a couple of the songs so there was a lot of uh culture shock between our like diehard fans and then these new all these new fans that were showing up so in some ways that was kind of a 
a bit of a mess, but you know, it was what it was. We were, we were, I mean, we were riding what we had. So, but there was, there was a little culture shock, which over the years has settled down, you know, it's back to just fans that really appreciate a lot of our music. But at the time there were people that were just showing up to hear runaround, you know? How does that change your life? Like, and, and you know, and besides the money, when you have that one song that is huge, and you know you're probably going to have to play that for the rest of your life, just because yeah. people go. But as as as, and you were, you guys weren't. You're well, what, it wasn't a big deal until we got our second hook. It's the second song on that record. That's what really made the album kind of a more of a long term staying thing. Um, and that song's another song we have to play for the rest of our lives. Hook and run around. Um. The nice thing about that is it kind of gives you a brand, you know, and as uh, you know, your, your name has a marquee value. All those things are, are good and, you know, gives you a nice long career. Um, it's kind of like a calling card. But I mean, really, it was just it was just cool. It was it, it, the uh, all the doing all the cool shows like selling out Madison Square Garden, doing uh SNL, doing all these crazy appearances, doing all these funny videos, doing all these different articles, and was just a trip. We were kind of, you know, we were just parting our way through the whole thing. We had a, we had an absolute blast through that whole, that whole period. But, you know, that kind of stuff never really lasts. So it was fun to do in our mid twenties. But, uh, and and the nice thing is, it does give us, uh, like I said. Uh, a well-known brand going forward, which, you know, we're, we're a small business as well. So those things don't hurt. Now, as music transitioned back then, how do you guys deal with that? Like, you know, we always, music changes all the time. You know, I mean, we're sitting there, I mean, for some of us, I'm a music fan. I listen to you guys. I listen to Zeppelin. I have my Amazon. I go, well, what am I in the mood for? But a lot of people, as you say, the people who just come to the concert to see run around once that's gone, they're like, well, I'm going to find the next thing. As a musician, and because you had such huge success with the album four, do you ever did you ever guys sit there and go, you know, what, we got to churn this kind of music out to keep it going with this, or did you say we have to be true to ourselves and just do what we want? We're always super quirky. That's just our nature, and I think part of the reason we've managed to to stick around this long is we've we've kept interested because we're always trying different things some some albums are totally left field some are right down the middle of the, the park it, it all depends right down the middle of the road it, it all depends kind of where our headspace is at going to the record so the whole time we've been trying to be true to ourselves and i i don't think there's much other way we can do it we're kind of quirky stubborn uh, and always searching for a new kind of inspiration but it, when people ask me why, how we've stayed around for 35 years now. This will be our 35th anniversary year coming up. Um, it's that. We've always experimented and tried tried new things, Kept tried to keep ourselves fresh and engaged. And for the most part, that's that's what, what we've done. How, how have you guys stayed so resilient? I mean, I know John had the emergency heart surgery and you lost a memory. That was a long time ago, yeah. But how did you guys keep, and that's early. So, you know, when we're younger, we're, we're more that's, apt to not deal with it. That's well, we lost one guy, right. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it's life. Everyone's got challenges as they go through life. Ours just happens to be while we're in a, you know, semi, uh, well-known musical group, 
but you know, I don't think we went through much more than what people go through in their day-to-day lives. There's health things, people pass away, there's work challenges, there's, you know, people getting ruts in life. I think we've, we've weathered all that the way most people get through it. You just got to keep popping up, trying new things, trying to stay engaged. And, um, luckily playing live and the experience with us in the crowd and playing with each other, the improvisation we do, the kind of the, in the moment playing we do is always enthralling. So no matter what was going on, we always had those live shows. And I think that's really what's kept us moving forward. You know, we always want to just get back to that moment. How did you come up with the festival, the one that competed against Lollapalooza, Horde? How did, how, did, yeah. how did that come about? Did you guys just say, we want to jam we and were, give our fans? You know, it was early, too. It was before a lot of us. We were, you know, were traveling up and down the East Coast a lot at that time. It was like 90, 90 and 91. And we kept running into, well, the, we knew the Spin Doctors from New York City. They came up with us in New York City. Uh, we kept playing, like, one-off shows and different things with Fish. And we kept doing shows with widespread panic. And we're like, we don't want to be in these clubs or little bars in the summer. We should, you know, we should team up and do like bigger shows. And that was really, so it was just for bumping into all those bands. Um, and the Aquarium Rescue Unit was kind of all of our favorite band. Um, and so we just, that was the idea is just to get a big group together so we could play some cool outdoor summer summer things and then you know uh we then a festival kind of grew up around that idea but really it was just organically again all of us were kind of doing this kind of what at the time they called neo-hippie music it was before jam band was a thing and we uh so we would bump into each other all the time and we so we became friends and we just wanted to throw something together that got us outside and was cool for the summer because none of us were big enough at that moment to do it now, what was what was your uh, feeling in the early days about videos? Everyone is different. Everyone is different. Uh, videos. Well, you know, our first big video. I mean, runaround video. We weren't even in. We were just like the guys behind the curtain. Uh, yeah, we had a fake band playing us, and we were just like the band behind the curtain. Um, so that was kind of what we would prefer to do with the video. Um, they're all kind of silly, you know. Live music, playing live music, is what really inspires us videos you can have some fun with but it's long it's boring i mean but it's what you had to do back then uh so i honestly say it was it was a necessary evil we had as much fun with it with it as we could but i would not call it a passion of ours a lot of people say and they forget you know how long you have to be on set and they forget that it comes out of your budget and stuff like that so, so after, you know, and leaving them, you, you started doing the, they call, you know, when you look at the bio, the independent years, what was it like when you weren't with a big label anymore? And, and like now nobody's with a big label, but back then you guys were doing your thing. Is that, was that a lot more creative freedom? No, the label always, I mean, we just always did what we wanted anyway. Um, when it was good with A&M, we had a nice, um, relationship with them and so it was a good give and take and they were asking for more of this i mean it, with four we actually had done two commercial records and AM came back and was like you gave us too much commercial we want more blues travelers so we went back in and recorded some more loose jammy song, songs so you know back then we had a good relationship with AM, and, and that that was a good good project but 
later on, the record companies got so big, it definitely became very all about hits and glamour and, and just all this like very artificial stuff. So being with a big record label just wasn't inspiring, but we still did our own thing. Uh, and so when we were, started moving through all these different record companies, it was just, we wanted to make a cool album and we would partner up with someone to make it. Um, we were never, uh, uh, we were never kidding ourselves that we were going to be competing with, uh, you know, with, uh, Rihanna or something like that, you know, that, that wasn't, then that was what record companies were at that point. So being independent was a lot more of a natural fit for us, I think. Now, when you guys, you've done, you've had a lot of albums, how later in these later years, do you sit there and say, well, you had, you had the album during pandemic, but before that, would you sit there and have a time frame, or would you say, we want to put a new blues traveler album, or would you sit there and say, well, how's my schedule? How does it work? I mean, it's when they're well, not pounding it. You know, it takes, it, it's, it's a pretty intense process. And, uh, you know, the, the, to do a month of songwriting and then a month in the studio and hash all the stuff out with all the personalities. So it takes a certain amount of emotional, uh, you need to be emotionally uh, prepared to go into it. And you can't just bang them out one after the other. So it almost has to kind of have a groundswell within the band. Like, oh, I think it's time. It's time. I, you got some songs. I got some songs. And, and then we have to have the window and, and, management needs to be like yeah let's do it like the whole thing needs to have its own organic groundswell and then once we start it's a really fun process making albums is great i mean because you're creating something out of thin air and there are always some great moments and great musical things so the the process of creation is so cool in uh in doing a record but you need to be in the right you can't force it it needs to kind of happen and build up momentum uh, organically, at least for us. Now, how has your musical talent changed over the years? Your writing, I mean, how, do you feel that your writing has expanded um, a lot? It, it has. I mean, you know, as uh, as I've gotten older, I keep trying, you know, to learn different styles of guitar. I listen, uh, you know, I don't listen to a lot of, like, classic jam band rock when I have my free time, I'm more like singer songwriters or like jazz or bluegrass stuff that's outside my normal, what I'm normally playing a lot of. So I think that affects, uh, affects it somewhat, but, um, we've always been a very eclectic bunch. So I think we've been, we grab influences from anywhere that's cool and, um, try not to put any rules on it. So, you know, I think, the one thing that's happened to my playing over the years, and especially because we've added keyboards in the last uh, 20 years, is it's gotten a lot more melodic because I don't have to hold down the chords as much um, as I did in, in the early days when it was basically just a three-piece and a harmonica, um, which has been cool. You know, always trying to grow a little bit. Now, what is the future for you guys? I mean, now you have this album out. Is it something that you're going to chill and just say, okay, when we can tour again, we will, and then we'll put another album out? Or you guys just let it play by ear? Well, no, we're out and about um, starting in January. We're down in Cancun, and then uh, we got a big tour planned next summer with Train. And uh, we got a bunch of stuff this spring. With um, And then I think next fall will be a big 35th anniversary Blues Traveler Tour. So next year is going to be a lot of touring. 
probably promote the blues record. Um, and then I have a feeling we'll probably be back in. I, I wrote a, a crap load of music during the pandemic because all I did was hang around here and play my guitar all day, every day, which was great. Um, so there's a lot of music floating around. I'm sure we're going to get in and do a new studio record one of these days. But next year is just a lot of touring and uh, celebrating being back, uh, being back at it because it's been a kind of a wonky last oh, totally. 18 months. Now, now, have you ever thought about a solo album? Sure. I mean, I know a ton of musicians around here. I had young children, but they're all just about grown up. So my time when I was home was like Mr. Mom. Um, but no longer do I have that excuse. So uh, uh, it does cross my mind to do something kind of a fun side project. Most likely, recording would be cool, but, but I'd like to just have someone, to, I live here in LA, I'd like to have a, a, an outfit to just play around town live with, because in the end, improvising and playing live is my favorite thing in the world to do, and I like it more now than I did when I was 16. You gotta go down to the baked potato, is that still open? I was just there a couple of weeks ago. It's rocking, that place is awesome. That, yep. that place has always been great, and it's certainly when you drive, it's like, it's it's certainly, like you always, like, in a day when you drive by, you go, okay, I see it, but when you're driving at night, because I would come from Burbank, it's like you almost always miss it. You're like, oh, shit, I just drove past it. It's across, it's across from the uh, uh, the In-N-Out. <laughs> no. But, yeah, no, I, that place is awesome. I was just there. I've got a buddy who's playing there in, a, in, a, in two weeks. I'll check him out. Maybe I'll even sit in. Now, two quick questions before we go. Some of your favorite crowds. Where have been some of your favorite places to play? Well, hands down, it's Red Rocks. That's been a cornerstone for the Blues Traveler experience. Uh, I think we played there 26, 27, 26 out of the last 28 years. Um, The Colorado fan base was the first fan base off the East Coast to embrace us. We've always had an amazing time there. The venue's gorgeous. So, um, Red Rocks for sure. Um, the uh, Pier 17 in New York has just opened up a new venue on the roof there, underneath the uh, the uh, Brooklyn Bridge, which we played last summer. That place is amazing. So that's my new new favorite place. Um, but shoot, my uh, probably my all time favorite is this tiny dive in the Lower East Side called Nightingale. We used to play in like '88, '89. Those were uh, those were good days. Now, and also, do you remember the first time you heard Blues Traveler on a like an MMR type station, not a college radio station, but like on a regular radio station? Um, I I don't necessarily. I do remember uh, the the funny thing is, is but anyway. I was getting some college radio play and I'd heard that that's a, that's a song off our first record. I'd heard that uh, they, were, they were playing it and then we heard it. We were driving through Colorado. As it turns out, Chords Light had stolen it and we're playing like they stole the chords and then they were like, Chords Light, it's the beer for you. So we thought, we're like, hold on, that's us. And then it was the Chords Light commercial. We ended up suing them and made a lot of money. That was our first big paycheck. Was Coors Light stole? But anyway, so first time I heard us on the radio, I guess that was welcome to show business, kid. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on, Chad. People go to bluestraveler.com. I listened to the uh, album Travelers Blues. It's great. You know, you got the Doors, you got Craze, you got a bunch of stuff, and it's good. And then you guys, you know, 
you entertain a lot of people. That must be a great feeling. You have all those gold records behind you. Uh, any, yeah, I thought I'd, I thought I'd uh, plaque flex for the uh, for the podcast. Any uh, any anything you want to promote for your own, or anything you want to give a shout out to? Um, no, I just looking forward to seeing you all at a rock show. So people go to see Blues Traveler. Go to their show when they're back touring. Next year's a big year. Go to their website, bluestraveler.com. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 881 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.